plant proteins, they contain varying amounts of the amino acids. These are the building blocks of proteins. And what those studies do is they pick out the least prevalent amino acid and they score the protein based on that. Now we have some human data looking at digestibility of a variety of protein sources and looking at the total protein digestibility rather than honing in on those you know, individual amino acids. And you see that the difference between the plant protein sources and the animal protein sources is maybe a few percent. And that's it. But even then, it's not very convincing that it's a problem at all. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Lakewood, California, Lewiston, Maine, and Oslo, Norway. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 29 of season 6, number 425 overall. This is a protein masterclass here on the exam room today. And our professor is Dr. Matthew Nagra from the Vancouver area of Canada. Now, something that you should know about Dr. Nagra is that he is someone who has forgotten more about the ins and outs of protein than most of us will ever even know. His knowledge here is so deep that it is incredible. And so we are really going to be taking our health IQs to the next level here today. So for our masterclass, here is the syllabus. How the body absorbs plant protein compared to the protein that we get from animals. Is there any trick to improving protein absorption that comes from plants? Perhaps we need to eat a specific nutrient to get the boost there. And on the flip side of that, do any nutrients block protein absorption? Do you need more plant protein than you do animal protein? Also going to be talking about complete proteins and protein quality. And in a feat of strength, we will be examining studies that compare muscle building in people who are getting their protein from plants to those who are getting it from animal sources. So that is our syllabus for the master class, plus a few other things along the way. But before we can get going with that, this right now is almost the last call to join us in LA for the exam room live and in person. That is going to be March 30th at the eBell. Dr. Neil Barnard will be joining me that night, along with Dr. Christy Funk and Dr. Columbus Batiste. Plus, from Dancing with the Stars, we have Samantha Harris, as well as from Plant Based on a Budget, the one and only Tony Okamoto will be there. And Harley Quinn Smith loves animals, loves plant-based diet, great musician, great actress, and one heck of an influencer on her family and inspiring so many people around the world now to also eat a plant-based diet for all the right reasons. She is going to be there as well. And perhaps you, March 30th at the eBell in Los Angeles, would love for you to join us. 
All you need to do to lock in your seats, just a few remaining, pcrm.org slash events. That's pcrm.org slash events, or just click the link in the episode notes. School is in session. Professor Dr. Matthew Nagra is in front of the class and ready with today's lesson. My friend, thanks for doing a little Protein 101 for us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on and uh, definitely a topic I love talking about, so no problem at all. First question is one that I hope will clear up a lot of this confusion out there, and that is, does the body actually absorb these traditional, I'll call them that, protein sources, meat, cheese, things like that, differently than they do from plant protein that you would get from nuts, seeds, and basically every other food? Yeah, so, I mean, you hit on one of the big concerns that's often raised, especially in the fitness community around plant proteins, and that is this idea of bioavailability, sort of the proportions of the protein that we actually absorb. Um, and with the animal protein sources, you're typically absorbing somewhere in the mid-80s to mid-90s as far as a percentage. Uh, with plant protein, it is maybe a little bit more variable. And there are studies suggesting that that absorption could actually be significantly lower, but there are some problems with those studies. Um, for one, the scoring systems that um, are typically used, called the PDCAS and the DS for, for short, um, uh, for anybody who's interested, what they do is they feed these protein sources to uh, animals typically, um, and they measure how much protein comes out the other end or how much is uh, absorbed by the end of the small intestine. And you'll find that yeah, it's a bit less typically with the plant protein sources, but they often feed raw foods, especially when they're doing it with pigs. Um, so they'll feed raw legumes, raw grains, etc., and they're less digestible in their raw state, and we don't eat them in their raw state typically, as far as the grains and legumes anyway. Um, the other big issue is plant proteins, they contain varying amounts of the amino acids. These are the building blocks of proteins. With animal foods, you have a pretty consistent, say, balance of amino acids. With plant foods, while all plants contain all of the amino acids or the essential amino acids, um, they can have more or less of certain types. And what those studies do is they pick out the least prevalent amino acid and they score the protein based on that. So not only are they looking at the digestibility differences oftentimes with raw foods, which is unfavorable towards the plant protein sources, um, but they'll actually pick out the amino acid that is least prevalent and score the food based on that. Now we have some human data looking at digestibility of a variety of protein sources, wheat protein sources, soy protein sources, um, and looking at the total protein digestibility rather than honing in on those you know, individual amino acids. And you see that the difference between the plant protein sources and the animal protein sources is maybe a few percent. It's nothing to really get concerned about. If you were really concerned about it, you just eat slightly more protein and that's it. But even then, it's not very convincing that it's a problem at all. I know that with certain nutrients like iron, if, if I believe if you, you eat vitamin C with that, it helps the body absorb it a little bit better. Could that also be the case when it comes to plant protein? Or are there some other nutrients that you might want to mix in there to really optimize that absorption? Um, there, there may be, but I would say they aren't going to be major contributors. The big one is going to be, yes, proper preparation. So cooking, actually removing some of the fiber, interestingly, can increase protein absorption too. That's why things like tofu, 
where some of the fiber is actually removed and is a little bit more concentrated protein source can be uh, beneficial as well. But I wouldn't say you need to hyper-focus on adding certain things to it. Vice versa, is there anything that could block, other than uh, eating it in its raw form, block the protein absorption? Um, again, the high fiber content legumes, possibly a little bit less, but it's still, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be earth shattering as far as the uh, numbers we're talking about. We actually have some data on cooked legumes. Like I said, they often feed the raw form, but even with cooked legumes, you're still looking at an absorption in the high seventies to even low nineties, as far as a percentage based on, uh, again, some of the limited data that we have. So yeah, a bit less perhaps, but still not a huge, huge difference. You know, I was talking to, I, I see the plant strong t-shirt. Um, I, I was yeah. talking to Rip Esselstyn not that long ago, and he really made it a point during our conversation to just basically say, well, look, you know, if you're getting enough calories, it's virtually impossible not to get an adequate amount of protein. Um, plant protein or not, is that something that you also subscribe to? Like, are we just too protein obsessed here and just make sure that you're eating enough and you're good to go? Yes and no. I think there's there's sort of two sides to that. There's the side where there is definitely maybe too much of an obsession with protein. And then there's the side where its importance is sort of discounted altogether. And um, I would say, no, it is important. And while we have the RDA, the um, recommended dietary allowance of 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So that would be taking your weight in kilograms and just multiplying it by 0.8. That's sort of the recommended amount, the amount that you need to you know, survive and, and live and whatnot. But there is research, especially for as we age, suggesting that higher intakes are actually beneficial to help maintain mobility, help uh, maintain bone health, um, you know, prevent sarcopenia, which is a, a muscle loss as we age. Um, and that target is typically set around 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, uh, which is not hard to get. But if you're really not focusing on any protein-rich plant foods, if you're just eating your grains and fruits and veggies and, and so on, um, yeah, you, you'll probably end up falling short on that target. So I do like to emphasize protein a little bit more um, just to make sure that you're hitting those targets. But it's easy enough to do with things like tofu, seitan, uh, tempeh, etc. Would you say that those are really kind of the best plant-based protein sources out there? What are some when you're working with a patient that you would recommend? Yeah, I, I love, um, I mean, there's so many different types of soy, of course. There's the tofu, there's the tempeh, there's the um, uh, soy curls. I don't know if you have that over there, but I just bought a huge case of them. I, I love those. <laughs> um, textured vegetable protein as well, or textured soy protein. Uh, and then there is um, seitan being a, a similar sort of idea. And then one that is um, I feel like it's becoming more common now to see is actually legume-based pastas. So using like a lentil pasta, chickpea pasta, I absolutely love using those and recommending those to people because it's such a sort of sneaky way to get a whole bunch of protein in and they're very fiber rich. They're um, loaded with iron and other minerals as well. So uh, definitely ways to fit those in. And, and I'd say those are some of my favorites. Where do you weigh in on the idea of protein powders? I guess, especially amongst the athletes who are looking for that little bit of an extra boost. Is that something that, uh, you know, athletes should be looking at? And at what point should somebody you were just talking about as we get a little bit older may need some more protein in their diet? Should they then be looking at maybe supplementing a little bit with that? Yeah, I actually am um, definitely a fan of uh, using protein powders to help hit whatever target you're aiming for. So if it is just 
more for the general health longevity aspect around the 1.2 gram per kilogram mark if you're having trouble hitting that then yeah a protein powder is a really easy convenient way to fit that in um, for an athlete who might be aiming higher so for let's say strength or hypertrophy so muscle gaining um, you're looking at about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight that's double the rda and while possible with just foods is certainly a little bit more difficult and would take a little bit more planning a protein powder can fit in there really well and, and you know be an easy way to bump up that intake let's say you typically make a smoothie soy milk you got hemp seeds your fruits veggies etc maybe you're hitting about 15 grams well you can bump it up to 35 40 grams by adding a bit of protein powder um so it's uh, definitely really convenient and i do like using it um, to help hit those targets when they just can't be really met otherwise is there a concern at some point with having too much protein in the diet at some point it goes from be uh, being this nutrient that we need and the body really loves to build those healthy muscles to being, whoa, you got too much of it now, Jack, and you're in trouble. So there are some uh, concerns that are often raised around that. And there's kind of two main um, uh, things that are looked at. For for one, it's the type of protein. So um, even with high intakes of plant protein, we don't see a higher risk of, say, cardiovascular outcomes, kidney disease, et cetera. Um, we actually see, if anything, it seems to be beneficial. Now, cases where we might want to moderate protein intake is perhaps some chronic kidney disease, and that's obviously something um, that one would work with their nephrologist on uh, as far as how much they're able to consume. And I'd say there's a little bit of debate around even that uh, aspect. Um, but when it comes to plant protein specifically, I wouldn't say there's really um, a harm to say going too high. I mean, you're never really going to get uh, crazy high unless you're you're just having a sort of protein powder TVP sort of diet. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine you getting even above like, you know, 2.5 grams per kilogram if you're having a pretty well-rounded um, plant-based diet. Yeah, I really wouldn't have concerns. Higher plant protein intake is typically associated with better health outcomes uh, than low protein intakes. And let's talk about that low protein intake. How would somebody know? What are some of the symptoms that they might experience if they are coming up short in that area? So you're, let's say you're sitting in that typical 0 0.8 to 1 gram mark, which is adequate, but maybe not optimal. You're not going to notice much um, as far as uh, symptoms. Maybe you have a little bit more difficulty putting on uh muscle mass compared to your peers, perhaps, but I mean, there's so many other variables there, it's really hard to, to pinpoint that. Um, that's more something that would come from tracking your intake and then, um, and then looking at how much you're actually consuming. Now, if you're really falling short, let's say you're at 0 0.6 or something, I mean, you can notice uh, muscle wasting. Um, if you're really, really short, as we see in a lot of impoverished nations, you can have uh, sort of a, a bloating uh, that can occur um, or a water retention. And that's a sign of uh, quashior course. So it's a, it's a actual protein deficiency, but uh, yeah, otherwise you're not going to have these sorts of symptoms. That's why it's really important to just get ahead of it and uh, really track your intake. And so you can help promote that longevity, the mobility, et cetera. And let's say somebody has been coming up short, maybe they're, they just switched over to the plant-based diet and you know, they're still in that kind of feeling out period or wh whatever diet, like even just coming up short for whatever reason. Um, if they then increase the amount of protein that they're taking in, can that then kind of offset the damage that may have done? Like, will that muscle wasting suddenly go away? You can start building healthy muscles again. So yes and no. Um, one 
aspect there that is really important is the resistance training. Um, there was actually a really nice review that came out last year. Uh, Tagawa was the author on that. And they looked at uh, protein intake and uh, muscle mass, uh, and actually, sorry, strength, uh, I believe in that one. And they looked at the impact of protein in a context of no resistance training, as well as in the context of resistance training. And in the context of no resistance training, just upping protein intake had very little effect on actual uh, muscle and strength gains. But in the context of resistance training, that's where you see the benefits up to about 1.5 or so grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Um, and so, yes, you can you know, help build back some of that muscle and certainly prevent worsening of that muscle loss by adding in the protein, but a huge component there is going to be actually stressing your muscles. Um, and that's, I think, one of the big takeaways here is there's this debate, as we just kind of mentioned, around protein as a whole. But within that debate, I mean, I think we can all agree that the resistance training, or at least we should be able to agree that the resistance training is the most important factor. Let's let's look at this then a step further. So we know that when it comes to uh, certain chronic conditions, you can reverse them. Uh, diet and exercise, a, a huge component there, but it is reversible. So let's say somebody does then begin getting that adequate amount of protein, does add that resistance training, even if, I mean, they just turned into, you know, a stick figure and they really had a lot of muscle wasting. Can you fire those things back up with the right amount of resistance training with the right amount of protein and get your health back on track? Yeah, yeah, that, that's going to be the, the key to doing it is just eating enough protein, also eating enough calories, right? If, if we're talking about a case where someone has lost a lot of weight, perhaps, then yeah, the, the calories are going to be a huge component as well. Um, and then you add the resistance training in and, and you can uh, get some of that muscle back. Yeah, I love that. I love the rebound thing, right? Because I feel like in this space, there are a lot of times when people just feel hopeless. And the thing that I love when I have guests like you on the show is being able to help paint that picture for them that, I mean, nine times out of 10, if not more, hope is never completely lost. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's good that we're talking about this topic too, because I'm just sort of a little bit of a tangent here, but just thought of it. Um, one of the things I find, uh, especially in uh, elderly populations, is that there is actually a big lack of resistance training. So it's good to have that reminder that, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the walking, any sort of, um, say, cardiovascular or, or aerobic type activities that you're doing are, are great. Um, but combining that with some resistance training, even a couple times a week or so, can make, you know, huge dividends for your health. How quickly, and I mean, I hate to put you on the spot here, but it, I mean, this is a question that also comes up. It's like, yeah, I'll make these changes, but how quickly might I begin to see or experience these results? So say somebody goes from being a sedentary couch potato, completely not taking care of themselves nutritionally to really talking, uh, implementing the things you and I are talking about now, how quickly might they begin to see some gains in that area? It's hard to give an exact number, but um, what I can say is a lot of the trials that we have on protein intake are, you know, anywhere or uh, say protein intake and resistance training are anywhere from you know, maybe eight weeks to 12 weeks. I mean, there are longer ones. There are some shorter ones, but usually in that window, we do see significant improvements. Um, and, you know, the amount of improvement is obviously going to depend on the amount and, and frequency and volume of resistance training. So, um, so hard to give an exact number, but I would expect to see results pretty quickly. And usually right in the beginning, even in that first few weeks or month, you have a lot of um, 
you'll build a lot of strength just based on nerve functioning. So it's, it's the way that your nerves fire and it's, it's sort of that, you know, muscle memory kind of idea. Not that it's, it's the most accurate term here, but, um, but it's not actually necessarily due to building muscle at that point. It's more just your, your nerves firing at a you know better rate and, um, and getting used to the movements. And so you tend to progress pretty quickly in those early times. I want to ask you about a muscle building study that you talked about on Instagram pretty recently. But before we do that, I also want to ask you about uh, the notion of not getting enough complete proteins while eating a plant-based diet. This too is something that has come up time and again. And for whatever reason, um, I guess the messaging there just isn't quite connecting uh, with a lot of people. So when it comes to making sure that you're getting a complete protein makeup, how does one do that eating a plant-based diet? Um, yeah, so for starters, the idea of a, or let's go with the scientific definition of a complete or incomplete protein. An incomplete protein would be one that is lacking at least one of the essential amino acids, meaning it doesn't have it. Now, all plants, every single plant contains all of the essential amino acids. There is not a plant um, that does not contain all of them. In fact, the only protein I'm aware of that is lacking one of the essential amino acids is collagen. And that's, you know, it's uh, an animal protein. So it's kind of ironic. Um, so that's not a problem. Now, where there can be concerns is that, as I mentioned earlier, plants contain varying amounts of the different amino acids. So they might be really high in certain amino acids, lower in others, but they complement each other. So if in your diet, you're having grains, you're having legumes, you're having nuts and seeds, et cetera, it all adds up and it'll essentially balance out and you'll hit enough of the, uh, the amino acids that you need. I don't think you need to focus too much on that as long as you have a bit of variety in your diet. The other thing is just by eating more protein, you can help meet the, the thresholds or requirements for the individual amino acids as well. So um, by aiming for those higher targets, that also adds in a bit of, bit of a safety net and helps get you there. It's really this idea of incomplete proteins and, and that is just, it's so outdated at this point, but it is something that I still see all the time online. And it's really a telltale sign that you know, maybe someone hasn't done their reading on the topic. The variety in the diet thing is interesting. I think that a lot of times people think, well, one of the things that we stress anyway is like eat the rainbow, eat a wide variety of colors. That means that you're getting basically everything that you need, every nutrient because every, every you know, colors. Anyway, I think it can kind of be overwhelming when you're introducing that concept to somebody for the first time to think that, well, every single time they sit down to eat, their plate has to look like, you know, a bag of Skittles or a 64 box of Crayola crowns, you know? It's just like, how does one really make sure that they are getting a wide variety of nutrients in their diet without getting absolutely neurotic about it either? Yeah, so uh, that's actually a great, great point you just brought up. It's not about combining at each meal. You don't have to worry about that. What I mean by variety is just in your whole day, you know, if you have oatmeal for breakfast, just, you know, primarily grain, maybe you throw in some nuts or whatever, uh, and then you have, I don't know, a, a tofu dish or something for lunch, and then you have lentils for dinner or whatever, all that stuff is going to combine. Uh, you don't have to focus on on making each meal the rainbow, so to speak. Um, at the same time, there are some foods that are really well balanced in their amino acid profiles, like soy, actually, I just mentioned tofu is one that's pretty well balanced. Um, so can be more comparable to say an, an animal protein source too. But again, if you're getting enough protein as a whole, um, and 
specifically aiming for those higher targets I mentioned earlier, you really don't have to worry about it too much. Um, I would focus more on the amount of protein versus versus you know combining and all of that because that should just happen naturally as long as you're not eating a very monotonous diet of like one or two things in your whole day. All right, so back to the Plant Strong t-shirt that you're wearing right now. It popped into my mind. I wanted to ask you about this study that you had posted about on Instagram that looked at muscle growth uh, among people eating a vegan diet versus those that are eating the omnivorous diet. You had a lot of fun talking about this one. There was a lot of data packed into this study. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, and actually, um, before even, even getting into that one, there was one study that was published about a year and a half prior, two years prior, where they took vegans, omnivores, um, they had them increase their protein intake to that 1.6 gram per kilogram mark, which is ideal for strength uh, and hypertrophy, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and they had them train twice a week for uh, 12 weeks. And ultimately there were no significant differences in muscle and strength outcomes. So that was you know, the first really good study comparing a, a you know, strictly plant-based diet to an omnivorous diet, uh, suggesting that, yeah, you can get similar sort of muscle and strength gains. Now this newer study kind of reinforces that idea. So what they did was they took participants, this was, I believe it was conducted in the UK. Uh, I guess that's, that point isn't as important, but um, they split them into two groups. One of the groups was put on a plant-based diet. Now I will note, it wasn't a hundred percent. They were kind of allowed to have one cheat meal or, or you know one day where they were able to eat some other stuff just to help with compliance as a whole. But by and large, it was a, a plant-based diet. And then the other group was on an omnivorous diet. Now the plant group, they actually replaced the meat in the diet with mycoprotein-based uh, foods. So mycoprotein, it's it's actually a, a microbe-derived uh, or a fungus-derived protein that's used in a lot of plant-based meat alternatives in the UK. Um, I haven't seen it really over here, but definitely know it's a big thing over there. Uh, and so they really upped their protein intake with mycoprotein, and they also took a mycoprotein supplement, whereas the uh, meat-eating group, I believe, took a, a whey protein or a milk, sorry, it was a milk protein-based uh, supplement. Now they had them um, also supplement creatine, which has been shown to uh, improve muscle and strength gains as well. So they wanted to really maximize the uh, performance here and both groups took that. So it's not a difference between the, the plant-based diet and the omnivorous diet. Uh, they had them resistance train five times a week, which is quite a bit. Uh, and they did that for uh, two to three months. I, I actually can't recall the exact uh, uh, timeline there. I think it was three months. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, there weren't any significant differences in, again, muscle or strength outcomes. Uh, if anything, there was one uh, lift where the vegans actually did, or the, like I said, they aren't strict vegans, uh, the plant-based eaters were actually performing a little bit better even, but there was one person who just went through the roof with their performance. So they were kind of pulling the, uh, pulling the results up. Uh, but regardless, there wasn't a detriment. That's the important thing. There was there was no significant detriment, no sign really of a detriment to the plant-based diet, both supporting similar gains, um, using a high quality plant protein or technically not plant protein, animal-free protein source uh, in the mycoprotein. Um, and it's just another piece of evidence on top of uh, that previous one suggesting that, yeah, plant-based diets can support these muscle and strength gains. And we can focus on the bioavailability and we can focus on the amino acid profiles and all that all we want. But if at the end of the day, you get the same net result, then who cares? That's all a waste of effort and energy to, to start debating all those little things when the whole picture shows that you're getting the same sort of result. Few things I want to unpack here. Uh, number yeah. one, you mentioned fungus protein, and that one is actually kind of new to me. The idea of a a fungus specific protein, like this is that's a big deal over in the UK. 
It's been there for a long time. Actually, funny enough, I've been working, uh, maybe I'll give a little little heads up and uh, maybe I'll, I'll be publishing this at some point, but I've been working on a review paper um, for uh, plant-based meat alternatives and cardiovascular risk factors. And, um, you know, throughout that time, I was, I was looking at some of the research we have on plant-based meat alternatives, and there's some on this mycoprotein going back to the late 80s. It's been around for a while. Wow. And so it's, it, yeah, it's super surprising. And there's some really good trials on it. Uh, but not so much in the strength space until maybe the last few years or so. But yeah, it's a it's a big thing over there. It's um, the the product is called Corn Q U O R N. Um, they're the kind of main company that uses it over there, and they have both vegetarian products, which I think do have some dairy in there, and then they have the strictly plant based vegan products as well. Yeah, that's available here in the states as well. Um, oh, it I've is. Definitely okay. seen it. Yeah, it's uh, it, typically in the frozen section. So uh, they'll have things like nuggets, and I think maybe, uh, I mean, maybe even a corn dog. I, I don't know. I never okay. really realized what kind of a, a plant protein that was. I never picked up the package to look at it. That's interesting. Like I was, I was wondering like, well, then how much protein is in the average portobello mushroom? You know, you you start <laughs> talking about fungus. Yeah. That's where my mind goes. Yeah, it's not it's not quite the same thing, but yeah, um, it's it's a very concentrated, very protein rich, high quality protein source. Interesting, interesting. Um, and then specific to the resistance training that the study participants were doing, did they, uh, the researchers, outline what the workouts actually looked like, or was it just kind of catch as catch can and just do this amount? No, that that's one of the good things about it is it was a structured plan. I can't recall the exact details of that plan off my head, but it was a structured plan, and they were working on progressively adding weight over time, you know, week by week. Um, and with five days a week, that's a high volume. That's a pretty solid volume for trying to maximize muscle gains as well. So um, overall, I, I really like the structure of the the study. And what kind of resistance training do you do? Are you a push-up guy? Are you a free weight guy? What do you do? Um, I do mostly free weights, you know, um, squats, bench press, deadlifts, et cetera. Um, and then I obviously, uh, I'm a soccer player as well. So, uh, do a lot of the cardio in that way. And what would you recommend to somebody who has not been doing much in terms of resistance training, uh, for a very long time? What's the best way that you would tell them to get started? I mean, if you're looking to get into, say, compound lifts, some of the lifts I just mentioned, I would definitely say working with a trainer is a good idea, at least in the beginning, to get your form down and to kind of understand the movements. Um, but also, if you if you really haven't done anything, you just want to get started with stressing your muscles a bit, um, there are a lot of, uh, I know, fitness YouTube channels and whatnot where they do even body weight or, or very lightweight stuff just to kind of get started. You know, wherever you're at, just start there and then you can build up. But definitely if you're getting into those compound lifts and you don't have any experience with them, I would, I would definitely say working with somebody who is more experienced is a good idea. Even if somebody's say, you know, up there in their years a little bit, maybe 70s, 80s, really now hyper-focusing on their health, trying to um, be as healthy as they can into their golden years. I mean, you, you would still recommend, you know, linking up with a professional and trying to do it up right. Yeah, I actually think that's a really good idea. And, and yeah, you might not be getting into, you know, squatting 300 pounds at that point, but um, <laughs> but but even even just to get familiar with the motions, getting the correct sort of form down, um, it's I think a good idea. And there are a lot of um, I know the gym I used to go to over here. Uh, there were a lot of classes where um, they would have them even for specific say age groups or specific um, uh, levels you know beginner intermediate etc uh, and they would work with you and and obviously there's a bit of a community there with all the different uh, different participants but um, I think it is a good idea just generally to get that um, get that sort of 
structure or instruction over it. Right. And no right or wrong answer here. Also in the study, uh, you said that there was a little bit of a freedom there. The guys could, uh, or the study participants had a, a cheat day or a cheat meal, um, as it were. As a physician, what is your take on cheat meals? Like how hard is it? I mean, I just feel like it's so personally, just speaking for me here, doc, it is so counter to what it is that you're trying to do with your health goals. Like why in the world would you say, I'm going to quit smoking for 10 days, but on the 11th day, I'm going to have a cigarette and I'm going to be a-okay. I apply that same philosophy when it comes to cheat meals, but I'm just curious to get your professional opinion. There's no right or wrong answer here. It's just always a conversation I like to have. Yeah. In my practice, I don't really use the term cheat meal or, or talk about it that way. You know, I find out what, what are the patient's goals and how can we achieve that? And, and I always make it really clear that, that it's on a spectrum. So, you know, maybe the further you move this direction up to a point is going to be beneficial and where you want to sit on that is, is kind of up to the individual. Um, this idea of, of, you know, cheat meals, as it were in the study, like I said, was really to help with compliance because they weren't vegans at the beginning. Um, and so just so it's not maybe as, as big of a change, uh, which is understandable, at least from a study design standpoint. Um, but generally speaking, I, I just don't look at cheat meals as, a, as cheating. Uh, so to speak, I, I just look at it as like, we're going to kind of set a, a target for what you're aiming for and wherever you fall on that uh, spectrum is is great. And we can always work on moving further, um, you know, afterwards. And, and I always, you know, follow up with patients every, you know, three weeks or five weeks or whatever uh, to see how the progress is going and we can go from there. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of different opinions on that topic uh, for sure. Yeah. And and I, I come at it with a completely different approach than a lot of people, right? It's it's just my route that brought me here. That's why I, I look at things the way that I do. My wife is quick to point out though. She's like, well, it's, you know, indulge if you want every once in a while. I was just on The Rock's Instagram and he posts about his cheat meals. And then if yeah. you go and you look at this, holy guy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy's eating like a king's feast. Like he has to pan in panoramic mode on his phone just to get all of the food that's on this long table in there. Like it is like, how in the world is this even humanly freaking possible, man? Yeah, yeah no, I've seen that. Um, and, and like for myself, I think this is a big part of it too, is very individual. For myself, when I first made the switch to a plant-based diet, um, or at least when I first went strictly plant-based, the big reason was I knew personally, if I were to allow that wiggle room for myself, then it turns into a bit more wiggle room. And then, you know, it's a bit of a slippery slope perhaps. For other people, they might be able to manage that a lot better um, if they have, again, this goal and, and, and they're able to once in a while sneak things in without necessarily um, falling off, so to speak, if that's the, the right term here, uh, then, hey, that that's okay for them. For myself, it ne wasn't necessarily in the beginning. And of course, now I adhere to a strictly plant-based diet for uh, ethical reasons as well, which makes it way easier. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's totally individual. Isn't that interesting how, you know, doing something for somebody or something else makes it easier than it is to do it for yourself? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that weird? Right? Like I, I, it's, it's heartwarming in a way, but it's also like, wow, you know, like maybe we should be putting more of a priority on numero uno from time to time, but whatever it takes to get you where it is, you need to be right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So here's the deal. Uh, we're going to be talking all kinds of protein at the Planted Expo in Toronto, April 29th and 30th. I'm going to be speaking there. Uh, not about protein. Uh, that's going to be your domain. I assume that you're going to go into a lot more detail those uh, when you're up there at the, where are we having this? We're at the uh, Entercare Center in Toronto. That's a phenomenal place. Holy cow. Never been. So we'll see. Yeah. 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 So you're going to get super in depth. Um, yeah, I'll get pretty in depth. I mean, I, I want to make it digestible for everyone, of course, but uh, pun. Uh, but anyways, uh, I, I definitely don't want to um, uh, miss out on any of the important details. Basically, my goal with the talk is to provide people with the information they need to answer that question that they're going to get about their protein. I want them to be able to drive that point home so hard that the person asking it will never ask them again. Hey man, nerd out, man, nerd out yeah. and spread, spread that nutrition knowledge. And then, uh, Vancouver at the end of May, Vancouver, May 27th and 28th, you're also going to be at the planted expo there. You're a busy guy, my friend. You are a very busy guy. <laughs> yeah. Keeping busy. And actually in Vancouver, I'm going to be doing a different talk because I gave this one, the protein one, the last time I spoke there. So, uh, this time I'm going to be diving into soy, all the mm -hmm. you know concerns and, and everything about soy. So, you know, that's always a hot button issue too, man. That's always a hot button one. Yeah, I know. Um, I actually, what brought that about was last year or a year and a half ago when I gave the protein talk, uh, one of the big questions at the end when I had like one minute left of Q&A was about soy. And of course, there's so much to talk about. So uh, planning to address all of it this time. Outstanding. Very much looking forward to it. Get your tickets right now. Plantedlife.com is the website to go to. We've got a link for you right now in the show description. And also give Dr. Nagra a follow on Instagram. One of my favorite follows at Dr. Matthew Nagra. Dr. Matthew Nagra is the place to go. Dude, you have so much great information up there and you present it in such a, a fun and straightforward manner. You, you really are just doing tremendous work. So it's been an honor to share some time with you today. Thanks, and, and same to you, and look forward to catching up in uh, Toronto there in about a month. So I am going to speak some truth here when I say that I am not confident that the great protein debate will be settled anytime soon. I think that animal protein versus plant protein is going to be a hot topic for a while still to come. But the good news is that our professor today, Dr. Nagra, has done a phenomenal job of providing us some facts that we can use the next time that we get rolled up into a conversation about this. So thank you, Dr. Nagra, for raising our protein health IQs today. And of course, he will be speaking at the Planted Expo in Toronto, along with myself. And we're going to have some other speakers who will be there as well, joining us here on the show in the coming weeks, including John Badass Vegan Lewis. He will be back here on the program to talk about his brand new book that just hit store shelves. Also, Muzmil Ahmad will be back here on The Exam Room. He's one of the faces of the next generation of lifestyle medicine. Can't wait for him to be back here on the show. And then making their exam room debut is Hana Sundarani. She will be here on the program before she speaks at the Planted Expo in Toronto. So stay tuned for all of that. But I want to go back to protein for just a second because there's kind of a new twist on a lot of these conversations among people who aren't yet eating a plant-based diet. They're still eating the standard American diet. 
I've had a few of these conversations just like this recently, as a matter of fact. A lot of people say, well, look, you have to eat protein in order to feel full. But during these conversations, oftentimes the person does not mention fiber. So that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like you fill up exclusively on protein, but you neglect fiber, the nutrient that is super healthy and will really help to keep you full for a lot longer than virtually anything else. And again, fiber found in plants. Not gonna find fiber in steak or chicken or eggs. Also not going to find cholesterol in things that have fiber. So just something else to keep in mind. Protein will in fact help with satiety, but not quite as well as fiber. Coming up on the next episode of The Exam Room, we are going to be turning to another hot health topic here. I mean, we're just on a roll with this. Why not? Keep the fire burning. We're going to be talking about bones on the next show. And you could say, well, yeah, okay, bones. I mean, that's not nearly as fun to talk about as a protein. However, for those of us who are getting older, this is critical. Because like protein, there is a lot of debate out there about whether a plant-based diet can provide adequate nutrition for bone strength. Can it do that? Or... Do bones become brittle if you're eating a plant-based diet, especially as you get older? That is the question. So Dr. Neil Barnard and I will be chatting about that on the next episode of The Exam Room Live. That's coming up Wednesday on YouTube and on Facebook. It begins at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And of course, you can always catch the replay right back here on the podcast first thing on Thursday. So we do hope to see you there. You can send your questions in ahead of time on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Chuck Carroll. WLC is where you can find me. Just go ahead and shoot me a message there and we will do our best to get you an answer when we open up the doctor's mailbag. And of course, it's not just the podcast here that's going to happen on Thursday. The exam room live and in person in L.A. also happening Thursday night, 8 o'clock at the eBell. Select tickets still remain. Visit PCRM.org slash events to lock in your ticket today or just click the link in the episode notes. Again, Dr. Barnard's going to be joining me on that stage that night along with Drs. Christy Funk and Columbus Batiste, plus from Dancing with the star Samantha Harris will be here as will Harley Quinn Smith great musician great actress great saver of lives what she did for her father Kevin Smith is second to none and what she's doing now for animals is also second to none can't wait to catch up with her and oh by the way the scrum diddlyumptious recipe goddess from plant-based on a budget tony okamoto will be there as well showing us how we can keep our costs down while keeping our health up so pcrm.org events or just click the link right now in the episode notes to get your tickets and for today that is going to wrap things up 
I want to say thank you one more time to my compadre, our professor, Dr. Matthew Nagra, for being here and raising our protein health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.